All right, so it'll take a moment for that to warm up as, as, we, uh, as it does so. Psalm 14, let's go ahead and read it together as we have been doing. Uh, just seven verses in the psalm, we'll read the whole psalm. Psalm 14, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salva the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. So that is Psalm 14. It is... A Psalm of David to the chief musician, nothing else of a particular note there, although we'll see, and, and you'll see this as we walk through. Uh, psalm 14 is almost uh, identical to Psalm 53, and uh, there is one verse of particular change, and we'll, we'll consider that together. Um, but in Psalm 53, there is a little bit more to the introduction uh, it's organized into two primary stanzas, verses 1 through 3, the wickedness of the ungodly, verses 4 through 6, the relief of the oppressed, and then verse 7 has this final statement of desire or, or wish. Um, this is very common at this point, right? We're into 14 Psalms now, and we've seen this idea about God um, uh, standing up for the oppressed, God uh, protecting the oppressed, and uh, the nature of the wickedness several times now, and we'll see that again uh, this evening in, in a, a, a different way, in a much more broad way. This psalm uh, is not only very applicable as it relates to uh, the New Testament, as we see that, that um, Paul quotes from it in Romans chapter 3, and we'll go there this evening, but we also find that this psalm has, I believe, a bit of a, a, a prophetic element to it, which we'll discuss together. So, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the verse and cover the verse, in each verse in turn, but then we're also going to consider Psalm 53 right next to it, and I've highlighted the differences there in red. So Psalm 14, verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Psalm 53, verse 1 says, to the chief musician, Upon Mahalath, Maskil, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they. So they are corrupt versus corrupt are they. Very similar. And have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. So we have these two psalms, very similar. Um, nothing within these. Obviously, you have the Mahalath and Maskil. A Maskil um, being that learning psalm, as we've talked about before. Um, but nothing, nothing major of difference here just yet other than taking the abominable works and actually highlighting that these are iniquities um, there in Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool here, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's only used 18 times in the Old Testament. It is the word Nabal. Um, and this is the name for Nabal, Abigail's Nabal, right? Um, and uh, David said that his name was it was well that his name was Nabal, right, because of the kind of person that he was, indicative of a vile person, uh, a, a person uh, of, of worthlessness and a person, uh, a, a fool. Um, but beyond a fool, indicative here of this idea of corruption and abominable works. Um, so Nabal is the word, and we do see this description of them as corrupt and those who have done abominable things. Uh, as with previous psalms, there, there's a real Romans 1 idea to this concept. Not that the, these fools are they who don't believe in God's existence or that don't understand that God exists, but rather the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. A person who rejects God's authority and is living outside of the reality of God. This is that idea from Romans 1. Having known God, they glorified him not as God, right? And then the idea as we get toward the end of Romans 1, 
that these people, knowing the judgment of God, not only do such things, but take pleasure in them that do them. So the, the connotation here is not the, the person who is completely ignorant of God, but the person who is knowingly, willingly rejecting what they know of God. There is no God, this fool has said in his heart. Also reminiscent, as we've seen in the other Psalms, of the idea of not fearing the Lord, that they are doing what they are doing without any regard for the fact that there is a God in heaven who will requite them. And we see this a little bit later on in this psalm as well. All of these psalms, almost every psalm that we've considered so far, drives home this idea of fearing the Lord and operating within the fear of the Lord. Operating within a general context of knowing that there's a God in heaven who sees and who will judge one day. We talked on Sunday about Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good and whether it be evil. That conclusion that Solomon came to after all of the vanity and vexation of spirit and trying all those things out for himself, that conclusion was... God is watching, God cares, I will answer to him, so I need to deport myself appropriately. And this is the same idea that we see here. The opposite of that is the fool. And as they reject the authority of God in their heart, we see this connection to corruption and abomination. In order for a person or a society to do such heinous acts, they must put the knowledge of God away from them. And this is, of course, very relevant for today, isn't, isn't it? We've seen since really the sexual revolution of the 60s, the cultural revolution, it wasn't just a sexual revolution, of the 60s, we have seen a, a, a very active push to remove God's design. And this is that slippery slope argument, right, where a person says, well, you know, if a person wants to uh, go do their own thing that's outside of God's design. You go let them do their own thing. It's kind of the libertarian wing of thinking, uh, uh, you know, they're going to do their own thing and, and, and their own thing is their own thing. Well, if a person doesn't want to pray in school, we're not going to force our religion upon them. But here's the thing. Society has a true investment in keeping God in the minds of their people. Because even for, for the, the vast majority of of any society who will never accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. There has never been a time in, in the United States or in any other country where the majority of people have been on their way to heaven. Just does not happen. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. But when there is a true God consciousness in any group of people or society, it is an inherent restraining force against deeper corruption in said group or in said society or in said family. The farther we can put God out of our thoughts, not only the more we are, we, we are able to do without our conscience nagging us, but the more we are prone to do in corruption and abominable works. And this is why when we talk about things such as sodomy, or we talk about the elements of, of critical race theory, or we talk about elements of the new transgender fad, or even we talk about elements of marriage and divorce. Why is it so important for us to hold these lines? Well, not because for the unbeliever, marriage means anything to them, per se, right? Not because for the unbeliever, one man, one woman means anything to them per se. Not because for the unbeliever, whether or not male is male and female is female means anything to them per se. And not that it, should, it truly matters to us from the standpoint of wicked people going to do what wicked people going to do. But from a design standpoint, a functional marriage between a man and a woman testifies of a creator. A functional, gender-classed and rolled society testifies of a creator. 
a functional work week testifies of a creator, seven days with a day of rest, testifies of a creator. All of these things testify of a creator. And with each one that society is able to purge from their consciousness, what they're actually doing is not, they're not, they're not purging morals or values. They never had those values. What they're purging is God consciousness. Because in a God conscious society, that society feels the natural restraint and constraint of their conscience. But if they can purge God from all their thoughts, then there is no inhibition for them doing what they will do. And so we have to walk this careful line, especially in our society and such, with all of our freedoms and whatnot, where we recognize that, that an unbelieving world cannot be bound to the tenets of, of a believing faith. But simultaneously fully acknowledge the value of keeping a God consciousness in society. The value of keeping God's design in society, not in, inherently because it's what the Bible says, but inherently because God's design is what works, because that's how God has designed societies. And so don't, don't allow, as, as, as you hear these arguments, be careful with the idea, the ideas of libertarianism as they get to this idea of, well, just let the unbeliever do what the unbeliever is going to do. Well, no, there is a societal value to design. And we as Christians would do well to maintain that because if you do not maintain that, it is in, uh, corruption and abominable works are an inevitable result. If societies do not structure themselves, not according to all of God's laws, I mean, that, that's ideal, but at least according to God's design. And of course, we're also seeing it now with governments who are, their job is to defend righteousness and punish evil, and now they're defending evil and punishing righteousness. All of it's being turned on its head, and there's only one result, and it is corruption and abominable works. It's all, that is the only possible result of such things. Thoughts? And naturally, as we think through this, um, this, and we'll, we'll see that this is going to, this is going to hit home. It's easy to look out. This is going to hit home really quickly. But may I encourage you, in your own walk, if we see what happens in a society that starts to leave the simple things behind, the fact that God created them male and female, the fact that God created one man and one woman for life, the fact that God created uh, uh, various roles, if, if we start to leave these things behind, or if, if we see what happens when these things are left behind, whenever we don't conform to God's design or align with God's design, we see the inevitable results in society. Let us be careful because in our own Christian circles, we, we'll always, you know, in theory, we'll always stand upon those big things. But what other elements of God's design? Are we ignoring? The element of God's design in authority, children, employee, church member, civilian. The elements of God's design as it relates to a husband and wife relationship. Husbands love your wives, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. The various elements of God's design. And what parts do we, we look at society and say, well, they're rejecting God's design here and the inevitable results are going to be corruption. But, but don't forget that the inevitable results of rejecting any of God's design is corruption. And the corruption may not be as evident or as bad in our human rankings, but it is the inevitable result. So for the mind that says there is no God, that has determined in their heart there is no God, and so they have put God out of their thoughts, they are corrupt and they are abominable. There is none that doeth good. None among those who reject God also do good. 
This is a simple moral statement. It's not being particular. Though, Pastor, there's none good but God. I know, I know. But this is a psalm, and it's speaking on an earthly plane. None do good, right? Those who reject God. And that doesn't mean that a person who rejects God can't do a moral thing, right? But it means that those who reject God, in their rejection, the only time anything in society, the only time society or individuals in society or families or individuals in families do right is when they are doing something that is aligned with God, whether they accept him or not, right? So in a state of rejecting God and rejecting God's way, there is no good that is done. The only elements of society that have redeeming moral value are those elements that society has borrowed from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And, the, and, and whatever elements are not borrowed from a Judeo-Christian worldview are not of the truth because Christ is the truth, right? Thoughts before we move on to verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And then Psalm 53, verse 2, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. So once again, no major changes here, just a couple of words. Um, this is where we begin to broaden it. Verse 3, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Psalm 53, 3, every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. A little bit more of a change here. They are all turned aside or gone aside versus they have turned back is the difference there. Every one of them among the children of men. This is where we broaden the idea. In identifying these fools of corruption and abomination, we're called not to look outward primarily, but to look inward. And again, we've seen this with the Psalms too. It's very easy to read the fool I said in his heart, there is no God, and say, they're all fools, right? And yet, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if any understood and sought God, and what he found is there was not one who did. No not one. And this becomes the foundational reality of those ready to accept redemption in Romans chapter 3. We'll go to Romans 3 here, and we'll read through it together. Paul, speaking in Romans 1 and 2 about, of course, Romans chapter 1 is the wrath of God appears from heaven against all unrighteousness. And then in Romans chapter 2, he begins by this idea that you are inexcusable uh, who judges. As you judge another, you condemn yourself. He begins to speak of the nature of the Jews and how as there is both blessing and cursing as to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as he says in verse 11, there is no respecter of person with God, for as many as have sinned without or outside of the law, that would be the Gentile, perish without outside the law, and as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And he goes on to talk about this idea of the, the, the law, and then he specifically speaks to these readers who would be Jews. Thou art called a Jew, thou restest in the law, thou makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. So he says, there are those who know the law well, and you are judged out of the law. But this doesn't relinquish or release you from accountability. This heightens your accountability. And are confident that thou thyself are a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and, the and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not, thou not thyself? Thou that preachest, a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest, a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorst idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast in the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? Do you, as those who hold to the law, do you break the law? And of course the answer is yes, absolutely. 
for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. So whereas Paul here, as he, as he gives this discussion, uh, he talks about all of these Gentiles and, 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 and those societies that are wicked and who have done wrong, which is what we just read about. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And Paul very quickly says, now let's talk about you, dear reader. You who thinks you are righteous and you boast in, in your righteousness and you understand that you, you, you know God and you know the things of God. And yet, guess what? You too are a sinner. And then he talks about circumcision and whatnot. And that brings us to verse 1 of Romans 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? And well, what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. So there is a benefit. There was a benefit to having, to being a Jew in that they were, they were the ones that got the law. They were the ones that were able to draw nigh to the Lord, draw nigh to understanding him because they were given the law. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Whenever Paul writes, I speak as a man, it means he's making a human argument, not a divine argument. It's what, it's what the, the, the unbeliever or the, the carnal man would say. And the, the concept here is this. Well, there are some that did not believe, of the Jews, obviously. Did their unbelief make the faith of God of none effect? Did it make the system fail? Well, no. God is still glorified. God is still, still, still justified even in the midst of our failures. And then Paul says, well, now there's the argument. If, if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, if God looks all the more righteous in the face of my darkness, well, then is, uh, is God unrighteous to take vengeance? In other words, if, God, if the whole point of God is to glorify himself, and I can actually maximally glorify God by being the most evil person possible, because by being the most evil person possible, God is maximally separated from man and shown to be the most, the most righteous, so that my evil actually commends God's righteousness all the more. Well, then why should God punish me for my evil? I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm glorifying him. If glorifying God was the end-all, be-all of everything. God will be glorified in everything, but that's not the end-all, be-all for my life. The end-all, be-all for my life is to believe and to align, to submit. This, of course, is one of those things that Calvinists get kind of wrong. Is they believe that everything is about glorifying God to the, to the very extent, exactly what Paul is saying here, to the opposite of what Paul is saying here, to, to, to what Paul is saying here as he speaks as a man. Man goes to hell and Calvinist says, well, praise the Lord, God is glorified as he burns because he was not the elect. Well, God will, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. But God is maximally glorified in us loving him, us coming back to him. How shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet judged as a sinner? And not, rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Are the Jews then better than the Gentiles because they've had the law, because they're more moral? Are, are we in a greater righteous standing? That would be the Jews of the time. For us, we could say Christians versus the fool that has said in his heart, there is no God. No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And this is where Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. He quotes various other psalms here. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Back to Psalm uh, uh, 14 there. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit, and the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God looked on the world, and he looked for any that would understand and that would do good, and he says there is none. They have all gone out of the way. They have all perverted themselves. There is none good, no, not one. And this is the universal leveling. Why is the universal leveling so important? Because in that we are all under sin, Christ's sacrifice can redeem us all. The universal leveling is this wonderful, wonderful thing whereby I don't have to be wealthy, I don't have to be born in the Western world, I don't have to, to uh, be able, I don't have to be literate, I don't have to have any of those things at my disposal in order to be want to be aligned in such a way to have the advantages necessary to be saved. Because that person who lives in the Western world, who has all of these advantages at his disposal, is just as much a sinner as I am. That person who was born in a Christian home and grew up in, with, with Christian parents and, and so was protected from all of, all of the... Uh, the, the, the things that the world has to offer and so has this, this nice moral foundation. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but they are just as much a sinner as anyone else. When I sit across pe from people in the jail, I'm just as much a sinner as they are. And this is so important for us to understand because in this universal leveling, there is universal opportunity for redemption. To this end, you know, God is not the white man's God or anything of the sort. You know, that's the big push today with critical race theory that Christianity is, is an extension of whiteness. Um, don't tell them that Jesus was a Jew. Um, And it doesn't make any sense, nor is it doctrinal. Because the Western world is the world that has been built on Judeo-Christian values, the Western world has become the dominant and, and most successful culture. That makes sense, because we're aligning with God's design. We have historically aligned with God's design, and we reap the blessings thereof. But there is no favored race or nation or anything of the sort with God. He has his chosen people. There will be a time where God will do what he will do with them, but that has nothing to do with who can be saved, right? By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. What is the law for? The law brings about a knowledge of sin. That's what it does. But now the righteousness of God without, outside of the law, is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed the way to salvation outside of itself. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that, them that believe, for there is no difference. There's no difference. Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond nor free, there is no difference. Universal leveling, no difference. All have sinned. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And thus we are justified freely by his grace. Paul appeals to this reality of what's being said here in Psalm 14. The reality of God looking down upon the earth, looking to see if any men understood and sought God. And they had all gone aside. They had all turned back. They had all become filthy. There's none good, no, not one. That includes you and me. Our goodness is in Christ. Our goodness is to the extent that we say in our heart, there is a God. And we clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness. Thoughts? Verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? Psalm 53, verse 4. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge 
who eat up my people as they eat bread, they have not called upon the Lord. Very similar, again, uh, we get rid of the all from 14.4 right at the beginning, and then instead of they call not upon the Lord, it's they have not called upon the Lord, but a very similar idea. This is God's response. He looks down from heaven. He looks for men. He looks at men. There's none righteous. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. And God says, have they all no knowledge? Can it be possible that evil men do not consider their end? Can it be possible that they do not regard divine justice? Can it be possible that they, knowing the judgments of God, not only do such things, but take pleasure in them that do them? Have they no knowledge? Have they not enough to understand that there is a day of reckoning coming, that judgment is coming? And once again, the call is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. All right? Because there will be a day when we will answer. So he describes them. He says, they eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. This is a twofold description of them. They oppress the innocent. They eat up God's people as they eat bread. They destroy them. They, they, they make a mockery of them. We'll see that in the next verse. Uh, they scorn them. They, they take advantage of them. And then, of course, they call not upon the Lord. They refuse to call out to him. They refuse to acknowledge him. They refuse to live in light of him. There's only one direction that ever goes, and that's corruption and abominable works. Verse 5. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. This is where things change. There were they in great fear where no fear was, for God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God has despised them. Do I do verse 6 with this? I was supposed to, but I didn't. Verse 6 of, of chapter 14 says, Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. And that's actually very important. Sorry I didn't put that up there. Let me get my laser pointer real quick here. This is where we get to see the strength of the King James Version shine through. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Notice our pronoun reference here. Ye. Whenever we see a ye in the King James Version, what, is, what, what undergirds that in the Hebrew or the Greek? What um, person and number of, a, of pronoun? Plural, actually. Ye is, ye is plural. The would be singular. So second person, plural, would be the ye. So they and ye, ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Who would the ye be there? Who are those that have shamed the counsel of the poor? Yes, Cars? Um, yes. Well, no. Not, not, in this case, it would be, I, I, I'm thinking back to the Romans 3 idea. In the Romans 3 idea, you'd have Jew and Gentile. Um, in this idea, it would be God's people or God's enemies. Who, who do you think it would be, God's people or God's enemies? that have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is good. So here, the ye and the they, these people that were in great fear, they shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his, not there, but his. That would be the poor man's refuge. Now, if we go back and look at Psalm 53, 5, which actually comprises 5 and 6 in Psalm 14. God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against not ye, but thee. So now we're in second person singular. And who is this thee? Thou hast put them to shame because God hath despised them. So in this case, the them is the one that is the enemy. Contrasted with the thee, God has scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame. So in this case, it's speaking of God um, fighting for the righteous and the righteous man is being spoken to. Whereas in this case, 
it's focusing upon the unrighteous man. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor. So verse 6 is speaking to the unrighteous man in Psalm 14. Verse 5 and 6, the, 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 the parallel in Psalm 53 is speaking to the righteous man. That's the difference. Well, well, and and uh, be thinking about that. I'm going to ask the question at the end. As we think through these two psalms, they're, very, they're so very similar, and yet Psalm 14 seems to focus in on the unrighteous, has a message for the unrighteous man. And Psalm 53 has a message. I wish I'd have put verse 6 on there. It would have been a lot easier to talk through this together. Has a message for the, right, uh, for the righteous man. And we'll try to compare and contrast that message toward the end there. Be thinking about that. So in the generation of the righteous, they will be in great fear. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. That word generation there literally means age or period of time. So David is looking toward an age of the righteous or a period of time of the righteous. The day of the righteous, we might say. And in that day, God looks upon they that fear God, that, that, that do not fear God, they that um, say in their heart there is no God, and as he looks upon them, they are in great fear. And the idea here is this. There's coming, every man will one day fear the Lord. The question is, do you fear him now and get rewarded later, or do you fear him later? Because God is in that generation and the enemy has rejected God. And then we see this in verse 6. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. They look upon the poor. This would be the idea likely of the poor in spirit, right? Not just not necessarily the, the physical poor, but the poor in spirit, the, the righteous. The Lord is his refuge and the wicked look upon those who have the Lord as their refuge with contempt. When I, when I think of this verse, I think of the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a German philosopher in the 1800s and had open contempt for, the, for God and for the things of God, and um, particularly in his book Antichrist, where he wished he was the Antichrist, uh, is the essence of that book where... Um, he talks with open contempt about the nature of Christianity. And what he talks about is this idea that uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the things that he was focused on was the Superman. This is actually where Hitler got the idea of the, the master race. And the Superman was, was a man who did what was necessary to push forward the envelope of human progress. And he saw Christians as being the absolute lowest form of humanity because we helped the poor and the needy. We, we lowered ourselves to the weakest and sought to bring them up when in fact the Superman cuts them, calls them from the herd because they're, they're, they're holding everyone else back. And so, and of course this is Darwinian evolution as well, right? The idea that the, the weak are destroyed in order that the strong may survive, and the strong survive on the, on the back of the weak. And so we, we have these ideas, uh, and the, the convalescing of these ideas in the 1800s, all of which led to Nazi Germany in the early 1900s. But the wicked, they look upon the righteous, and they see these whom, for whom the Lord is their refuge, and they have open contempt for that. They look with, uh, they shame the counsel of the poor because the poor flee to the Lord for refuge. Because the poor fear the Lord, because the poor have said there is a God. And the wicked have said in their heart there is no God. Thoughts? This same contempt finds its way into, has always been in society and finds its way into society 
um, the contempt for those who would seek into the Lord, who would trust the Lord in this manner, who would uh, lower themselves that the Lord may be exalted. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the people or the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. And we see the it verbatim in, in uh, Psalm 53, verse 6. Some have taken this verse to imply that this psalm was written while Judah was in Babylon. We would not believe this because we believe the Bible. And the Bible says David wrote it. And David wasn't around in the days of, of, of the Babylonian captivity. So, of course, that would be modern scholars that say, you know, that don't believe anything was written by anybody but a bunch of, you know, uh, priests hundreds, thousands of years afterwards, and, and it's just a bunch of oral tradition and whatever else. But if that is true, that this was written in David's day, then what is this verse talking about? Any thoughts? Sarah? Okay. Anything else? I would agree. I think this is the time of Messiah redeeming Israel. I think that's what David's looking forward to here. And we saw that allusion in verse um, 5. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous, right? The age of the righteous, the day of the Lord, the day where righteousness will have its day. So we see this allusion. There's, and, and this brings a, a, about a gospel emphasis in the psalm, right? There's none that doeth good, no, not one. They all turned aside. They're all gone out of the way. And yet for all of that, there is this day of the righteous. When God will bring back the captivity of his people, when even the, when, when, when the wickedness of God's people, when the, the, the wanderings of God's people, not the earthly wilderness wanderings, although that will happen too. I mean, that is happening right now, right? They're scattered. But where God will bring his people out of the captivity of their sin. That's my thought as far as this is concerned. Jacob shall rejoice, Israel shall be glad when salvation, oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Oh, that God would redeem his people. Very interesting thing to, to write in the days of David when the people were not in captivity. But that's what allows us to link it so clearly to Messiah. Thoughts? Why might God have put this psalm into the Bible two times with just this little change? What, what do you think? Um, let's, let me do this. I'm going to do a quick edit here so we can get this second verse in and we can look at these together. Nope, that's not what I wanted to do. Did that take? It didn't take good. There we go. All right, that is five and six now. So we see this contrast. Everything else is effectively the same, except we see in the one, God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. And then the second, uh, they were in great fear where no fear was. So they, they are now fearful where there was no fear. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame because God hath despised them. Explain to me the contrast. Sarah?
Yeah. It's a good thought. Anything else? Right. And now, and now, where there was no fear, now there is fear. Andrea? Any other thoughts? Yeah, and Andrea said, make, make sure that both groups got, get the message, that the psalm is to both, both the unrighteous and the righteous. I, th I think that you two are exactly right. The idea is, I would believe, you know, this is interpretive, but in that second psalm, in Psalm 53, there's, there, there's a, a, a victory feel to it. The, the bones have already been scattered, right? Against those, you know, the bones of those that encamped against thee are now scattered on the ground. Thou hast put them to shame because God hath despised them, right? So they are now ashamed. Whereas they once shamed you, in the days of Psalm 14, they shamed you for your trust in the Lord. Now you stand there in victory and they are ashamed. They have been put to shame. And so it's like almost a before and after. And I do wonder in that case, if there was something, some people again, link this to the day, day of Absalom the day where David is, is fleeing for his life. Um, and I do wonder if there was some event connected to each of these. Of course, the Bible doesn't talk about it, where there, was a, there is a before and after, where they would sing, you know, they sung the one song before, and they sang the other song after, where just a slight tweak, where before it was they will be in fear, and they, and, and they are shaming us, and now it's they are are in fear and they have been shamed themselves. And so I, I would wonder if, if there was a circumstance. I don't, I don't know what that circumstance would have been. Maybe Absalom, the before and after of Absalom's rebellion. It seems like almost every one of these psalms seems to per, perhaps connect to Absalom. Um, I, don't, I don't know, but that is what we see. It's almost like a before and an after. It, one, one warning the unbeliever and one... Um, ministering to the believer, right? Or one warning the, the unrighteous man and one ministering to the righteous man. The same concept overall, the same uh, forward-looking victory, but there, there is a different tone. One is, it's going to happen. One is, you're living in the victory. Interesting. Andrea. Right, exactly. You know, we, 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 you, you sing the anticipatory Psalm 14, longing for the day when you get to sing Psalm 53, right? Um, I don't know that, that any hymn writer has ever written a, a song like this, where, where there's, there's like a, the same theme through the song, but a tweak in perspective from one to another. I think that'd be a fun thing. Or maybe, I guess maybe you could see it in the same song with different verses, you know, where maybe that would happen. But this is a really interesting um, method where David writes two psalms that are almost exactly the same, but there's just this little perspective change. Uh, and it's, I think it's kind of neat. Any other thoughts? That song, oh, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, even among the wicked kings, when, uh, when someone came up and said, your God can't save you, God would, simply to avenge his name, help the wicked king. It's like, that, that, that's, that's the greatest place to be, is having someone come up and insist that your God can't save you. It's like, yeah, say it again, please. You know, because that, that basically guarantees the victory, right? Um, if, if you don't think God can save me, uh, and you're going to defy the living God. And very much so, kind of that idea in Psalm 14. Andrea. 
Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Andrea said it's very similar to David and Goliath. I'm, I'm wondering if that would have been the inspiration. Because even that would apply to the captivity of the people type idea because the Philistines were, that, that was when they were redeemed out of captivity of the Philistines through that. That might be it. Shaming the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Who is this dog that comes to me, right? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Did he? Oh, feed, feed the carcass to the birds and maybe scatter the bones. I, 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 quite possibly. That, that, might, that might have been the inspiration. And then, and then uh, singing afterwards that, because they chased them, you know, until evening, and and uh, then their bones were scattered, and there was a there was a, a trail of bones all the way back to Philistia, right? Um, and they have been shamed. It might be it. Yep. Yeah, he defied the armies of the living God. Yeah. I think I would think of any account, you know, as I I was racking my brain today, and and and. And trying to think of where it might be, that might be it. That would, I think that would make the most sense contextually. David and Goliath. Hmm, good, good stuff. Anything else? That's Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.